Headphones. Headphones. Hello, and welcome to Strange Little Worlds. I'm Danny. I'm Dan. I mean, I'm Drew. <laughs> and yeah, wel- you're Drew. I'm Danny. <laughs> well, and welcome to Strange, Strange Little, Little Worlds. Worlds. We are the figuratively traveling podcast going right now from state to state looking for true crime and paranormal stories that happened in the strange little worlds you call home you see what they did we did there and, and plus did. us doing this saves us money on gas and yes us. yes that's why we're figuratively and metaphorically doing this not literally <laughs> Danny, but danny if you explain it then it's not funny so <laughs> oh right. my gosh right. so and also you might hear some pitter patter in the background that is the resident dog Lilu is her name. I apologize. She lives here. I, I riled the dog up. I gave her too many tummy rubs and <sighs> she was just like. She loves them. She was just like, you need to stay forever. And I'm like, oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. I'm going to break a heart today. <laughs> it's okay. You'll be back. <laughs> Indeed. So. So welcome back everyone. And today we are in. Rhode Island. Indeed we are. But first, before we touch on Rhode Island and a lot of crazy, spooky murder weirdness, yeah, right? we have an exciting accomplishment that we'd like to announce. Danny, let me just, you know, metaphorically. Drum roll. <laughs> we just hit 1,000 downloads. Yeah, yeah. Hey, woo, woo. <laughs> the, you know. <laughs> Confetti is literally falling from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And, uh, you know, as I said, we would get a drink, but since we're both trying to be healthy, let's just clink the glasses. Clink our water glasses. Clink. clink. <laughs> but seriously, everybody, thank you so much for believing in this enough for a thousand downloads. That's pretty yeah. impressive. Thank you. Thank you. And I have a little revealer for Drew Sweet. and for you guys, because you've been listening to us, our number two episode. Mm-hmm. The Lake Ronkonkoma and Gilgo Beach episode so is our number one downloaded and listened to episode. And so what you're saying is number two is actually number one? Exactly. Okay. Hey. Just make sure you flush. <laughs> and then, so we're going to do a little differently this time. We're going to thank the individual states and countries that listened to us at the end of the episode, because mm-hmm. I've noticed it takes up so much time in the beginning. Well, you're, and you're, I know you guys grateful. want to get to the good stuff. Danny, it's not your fault that you're very grateful and you want to go through. There are a lot of states and a lot of countries in the world. Yes, in the world that have actually listened to our podcast. Listen, these are places I've never been nor have the money to go to. (laughs) So this is the least I can do for thanking them for investing in us. Yeah. So but because I know you guys are here for the good stuff, we'll thank you at the end instead of at the beginning. And we're just going to go right into... The, the stories. good stuff. So. Uh, I'm are, sorry, the spooky stuff and murder. Yeah, just keeping it alive. <laughs> so are we doing this? Am I going first now again or are you still going first? We're like, waiting until I think episode 20 to do that, right? Right, right. Because we're keeping consistent and then we're going to throw the monkey wrench. Yeah, we're going to throw okay. that monkey wrench right at you right after at 10 you. episodes. So we're in Rhode Island and I have to say, you know, I've only ever been... To my knowledge, to Rhode Island once. I've never been there. Um, it's a very nice place. But- I'm sure. So in my mind, I, when I picture Rhode Island, I picture like beautiful, there's like greenery and trees mm. and mm. water, some beaches. Right. 
kind of like maybe a little bit of Connecticut, but with just more water. Right. And then when I did the the research, I didn't think I was going to find anything at first, right? Because right. it's like, oh, you think it's quiet, pleasant. sleepy place, beautiful. Nope. No, they got us so many murders. Yeah. It's... So many people dead. So many. They have serial killers. So... I got one of them here. One. I did one because I, I can't do them all. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like a serial killer trading card. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it comes back. The trading card game is back. The stats on the back. Oh, man. We got to make that into a thing. We really should and shouldn't. We should because that would be funny. It shouldn't because... Because it's wrong. Exactly. It's a little insensitive. Um, Because remember we talked about this, about how serial killers somehow gain infamy because of us constantly talking about them, almost like they become celebrities. Literally, there's a whole meme on Instagram that I saw where it was like, I know more about Ted Bundy than I know about my own family. And I was like, (laughs) it's true. How many documentaries of Ted Bundy are we going to have? How many documentaries do you have about your family? One home video. (laughs) Right? Like, it's true, though. Like, there's so much about, like, Ted Bundy and, and, and Edmund Kemper and some of the other ones. It's like, okay, get it. They were horrible people. This is what they did. How right. many times are we going to like rehash it? So uh, I have found some really good stuff in mind because, again, like you said, there's so much there. And I, I'm sure it's haunted. It, it is a very scary place. But also it's very rich in history because, again, a lot of great writers came from Rhode Island. The two most Ooh. prominent being, of course, H.P. Lovecraft ah, and yes. Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe. <gasps> Edgar or Edward? I I feel like... Edgar, right. Okay, I just... I want to make sure because I don't need any of my friends who are hardcore literature nuts to be like, excuse me, foul, sir. (laughs) Foul. And I was like... Strike. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) One strike. (laughs) If you get to three, you forfeit your library. Um, Yeah, no, no, no. So Edgar Allan Poe... I did not know that, that he's from Rhode Island. He Or he definitely... If not from Rhode Island, he definitely... uh, There was a lot of history there. One of my many episodes details one place that is a strong history and association, both with him and H.P. Lovecraft. Nice. So very excited to do that episode. Very cool. But there's a lot there, and I can't wait to us to go into those episodes. But of course, ladies first... (laughs) This time. (laughs) This time. Uh, Until episode 20. Exactly. We're going to get there. So take it away, Danny. I will take it away. And today we are going to Warwick, Rhode Island. Okay. Where a Craig Chandler Price or Chandler Price is from. Okay. So we're going to start with not Craig. We're going to start with some people who were murdered. So in July 1987, okay. Rebecca Spencer All right. was found dead in her living room of in the living room of her home mm-hmm. in the Buttonwoods neighborhood of Warwick. Okay. She was 27 years old and the mother of two children and she was stabbed 58 times. And so one time wasn't enough. You had to Nope. Nope. 58. I think 58. Caesar her brother discovered her I think C- Julius Caesar was stabbed 37 times. Something like Something that. Something like that? Yes. So she was to stab more times than 58 Caesar. 58 times, yes. Wow. That is a very aggressive way to die. She's not the only one. Oh, continue, please. Sorry. Because two years later, on September 4th, 1989, in mm-hmm. the same exact neighborhood that Rebecca's body was discovered, mm-hmm. the family of Joan Heaton was discovered. So it was Joan, her two daughters. Okay. I'm sorry, Joan and her two daughters. So Joan... Heaton was stabbed 57 times, bludgeoned 
and strangled. Wow. Her 10-year-old daughter, Jennifer, was stabbed 62 times. Mm. And her 8-year-old daughter, Melissa, was stabbed 30 times and her skull was crushed. Wow. The killer had to use multiple knives because they kept breaking in the bodies and getting stuck in the bones. Oh, my God. Additionally, they had all been stabbed with the same kitchen knives that Joan herself had bought earlier that day. Jeez. The Warwick Police Department obviously worked day and night, you know, trying to figure out what the hell happened. They were interviewing locals, reviewing all the evidence. They even enlisted the FBI's uh, former top profilers. At the time, he was their top profiler, Greg O. McCrary, Mm -hmm. to assist in the investigation. So Mr. McCrary looked at both cases, basically, because right. this this one, he, he was called in to look at the Heaton case, but he also looked at the other one because it was unsolved. In both the Heaton and the Spencer cases, the killer used a weapon that was already present inside the house. Okay. Which presented a strong evidence that the killer originally entered the residence for another purpose, which was to burglarize. Oh, I see. Right. One thing became another. Exactly. And it's likely that the intruder was unaware and murdered the eyewitnesses using what Mr. McCrary referred to as a weapon of opportunity. Yeah. So burglars or robbers, they often burglarize houses that they know, they're familiar with. You know, it's in their neighborhood. So the more familiar you are with the contents of a house, the more successful of the robber you'll be. Absolutely. And then again, a lot of, from what I understand of burglary, sometimes a lot of it, when it turns to murder, it's usually... I, I hate to say it like this, but it's somewhat of an improvisation. Mm-hmm. It's a mix of panic. It's not planned. And fear. Yeah. So, again, like you said, you know, your your simple job gets botched. Mm-hmm. You're afraid of getting caught. So, like you said, you eliminate the eyewitnesses with whatever you have. You find a knife. You find a billy club. Or I mean, you know, very few houses Most burglars try to escape, though, so they can't be seen. Exactly. But the thing being is most. Most. You do have a few who are willing to kill. And those are, you know, those are people who would kill anyway. And clearly that's what we have here. Someone who is willing to burglar and murder. Yes. So they choose houses that they know. They're familiar with the contents. They are also in like close to where they live. Right. You know, easy to get away. Right. So Mr. McCrary suggested that in both cases, the murderer likely entered the residence with the intention of robbing and probably was familiar with the houses, maybe even the residents themselves. Additionally, he believed the murderer lived in the Buttonwoods area because both crimes were committed five houses from one another. Right. So another similarity between the cases was the unusual display of overkill, right. the excessive number of stabbings. Right. So due to the extreme nature of the crimes, it was highly probable that obviously the same person committed the murders, even though they were within two years of one another. Right. He was connecting them. Mm-hmm. So he suggested to investigators that the frenetic manner of stabbing, quote unquote, right. used to kill the Heatons likely resulted in the murderer stabbing his own hand. He okay. probably inflicted an injury to himself. He told investigators they should look for someone in the neighborhood with a cut or bandaged hand. Mm -hmm. He also, his advice was also very useful to investigators because it significantly narrowed the search for a suspect. 
So, and they had a location in which to begin the possible characteristics of the suspect, which was the area. Right. So now they just needed a little bit of luck, basically. So investigators got their first break in the case when detectives Ray Pentergast and Mark Brandreth talked to a neighborhood boy named Craig Price. Because, of course, they're going around, they're asking witnesses, residents, you know, stuff like that. You know, have you heard anything? Have you seen anything? Do you know about this murder? Right. So he's, this Craig is initially one of the residents that they're just like asking. He's a teen, but like, they're like, do you know anything? They're going to ask everyone whether you're a teen or not. So Detective Pentergast asked Craig if he heard about the murders, of course. Craig responded that he was concerned. He was aware of what had happened and that he had seen the bodies coming out the house the day before because he lived just a few doors away from the Heaton family. Okay. So during the conversation, detectives noticed that Craig had a bandage on his hand. Mm -hmm. Suspicious. They asked how he hurt himself. Craig claimed that he got drunk several nights earlier and punched his hand through a car window on Keeley Avenue. And as detectives pulled away, they couldn't help but wonder if he was telling the truth about that. Yeah, it's a pretty specific thing. It's believable, you know, you punch something, but yeah, they're like drunk, you Okay. To punch we something. have no we have no reason not to right. question him. But Craig was fifteen. So they're like, This kid is admitting to us that he drank and punched a window. Yeah. That's not something that you no offense that you admit to the cops. That's right. But the other thing about Craig was that he was already familiar to law enforcement in that he had an existing criminal record for various petty thefts, breaking and entering, peeping into houses and using drugs. Okay. However, because you have all of these other things, it doesn't mean you would commit such horrible murders as the Heaton murders. Petty, like petty larceny, being peeping Tom. Yeah. Going and then. You know, going to uh, what what we could probably say is overkill. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say exaggerated murder, but overkill yeah. works too. Yeah, exaggerated you, murder. Yeah, but it's a huge leap. Yeah, and he apparently this this Craig um, kid wasn't exactly like a bad person to be around. Like he was like a good personality too. So like as much you know burglars, thefts, like that doesn't mean you're a horrible person. You, you could still be cool to hang out with. But the fact that he had a cut on his hand, lived on the same street as the Heatons, was a little too much of a coincidence for investigators to ignore. Yeah, the, the odds aren't exactly stacking up. In this so period. they had to follow up on it. It might mean nothing, but they had to. Right. So they wrote up the report and began to investigate his story. Mm-hmm. They learned that there were no police report of a car window being smashed in the area that Craig mentioned. They also went to Keeley Avenue and mm-hmm. found no evidence of glass on the street. Right. The two detectives began to start like doubting even further his story. Right. So he started to become a viable suspect, even though many in the department believe the officers were wasting their time investigating him. Right. The two detectives decided to follow their gut feelings and pursue Craig as a lead. Mm -hmm. They just needed more evidence to support their theory. So in the meantime, expert blood analyst Dr. Henry Lee was contacted by the police and asked to examine the Heatons' residence for clues. He went to the house, analyzed the blood splatters and trails, and during his investigation, he gathered vital clues from the crime scene, including 
a bloody sock imprint, and whoever wore, I'm sorry, whoever left the imprint wore a size 13 shoe. Okay. So, because the facts weren't adding up, and Craig was no average 15-year-old, right. being 5 foot 10 and 240 pounds. Okay. For our international li- listeners, that's a little under 2 meters and 108 kilograms. He played football and had something of a temper. While he had a good personality, he was quite... Volatile. Volatile. Police had been called to his house on more than one occasion to settle disputes in which he was involved in. Hmm. So the first time he was questioned with his parents there, of course... He maintained his story, and after going through a polygraph, the test revealed he was lying. But it didn't prove that he was a killer, so instead they let him go and placed him under surveillance. Right. During interviews with Craig's friends and acquaintances, investigators discovered that he boasted about killing Rebecca Spencer, the first murder in 1987. And that was the first evidence they had connecting Craig to a murder, and they obtained a search warrant for his house. So that was because... He had supposedly boasted about it to a friend. It gave them probable cause to search his house. Why would you do that? I just don't understand. Why would you boast about murdering someone? Like it's a, like it's a participation medal or something. If you didn't do it, you're trying to look tough. And if you did do it, you want credit for it. A lot of times when you murder somebody and you have no remorse for it, you want the notoriety that it comes with. Again, you want people to know. The celebrity status. Yeah, exactly. And you want people to know how how dangerous you are, that right. you are not to be messed with. So in the early morning hours of September 17th, mm-hmm. 1989, mm-hmm. a team of officers rang the doorbell. Now, usually when they do search warrants, it's like some ungodly hour in the morning, like 4 a.m., 3 a.m., you know, like well, yeah, because everyone's sleeping. They want to get you unaware, unprepared. Uh, and caught off guard. And caught off guard. Exactly. So Craig's father is the one who answered the door, and he was obviously shocked to see police at his doorstep. Right. But he had no choice but to let them in. Right. So the rest of the family, including Craig, his mother and brother, were all awakened, and they were asked to sit in the living room during the search. Apparently, they were all visibly distressed by what was going on, Mm -hmm. except for Craig, who was dozing off on the couch. Okay. It didn't take investigators long to find what they were looking for. Tell me more. While searching the shed behind the house... A trash bag was found full of incriminating evidence. Within the bag were several bloody knives from the household, the Heaton household, along with bloodied articles of clothing, gloves, and other objects. Hold on a second. Are you telling me he kept souvenirs? I'm saying he never got rid of the evidence. Oh, my God. What a... Excuse me. What a fucking idiot. Like, uh, continue. So investigators woke him up because he was sleeping on the couch and arrested him for the murders of Joan, Jennifer, and Melissa. Right. And he seemed completely unaffected. Craig was booked, then interrogated about the murders with his parents there. Again, he's 15 years old. Right. The detectives hoped Craig would come clean about his crimes, and they got more than what they expected. Oh, boy. During the interview, Craig amazed detectives when he immediately confessed to the Heaton murders. Wow. He described in detail the events of the night, 
And although his story kind of changed a little bit sporadically, like it would occasionally like change a little bit. He'd say one thing and then he'd say something else. Eventually, he finally got worn out and decided it was easier to just tell the truth about everything. And he did this with his parents in the room. Mm -hmm. According to Denise Lang's book, A Call for Justice, quote, what came out of his mouth next stunned even the most experienced and jaded listeners and sent his father, John Price, to the men's room to vomit rendering him unable to return. Wow. So Craig's mother was the one who listened to the whole thing because his father couldn't even wow. stomach it. So she stood there and listened as he recounted the events. And Craig told investigators that his primary intention was to burglarize the house, like our FBI profiler suggested. He said he found an open window in the kitchen, which he crawled through. Right. He accidentally landed on a table, which broke because he's 240 pounds. And despite the noise, he continued in the burglary. Uh-huh. So Craig claimed that he walked through the residence looking for items to steal. He didn't realize that the noise had awakened Joan, which I don't, I don't buy that. Like, you just made, you just broke a table. You think it's not going to wake up the resident? Whatever. She walked into the kitchen, spotted Craig when she turned on the light. And in a state of panic, Craig said that he grabbed Joan, then beat and strangled her. Joan's screams woke up the children who stumbled out of their beds to the hallway. Mm -hmm. Melissa, the eight-year-old, ran to the kitchen to call the police, but Craig, being 5'10 and 240 pounds, overpowered her. Mm -hmm. He tackled the girls to the floor, then went to the kitchen, grabbed some knives, and began to stab all of them. During the attack, one of the girls bit Craig's hand, and in a fit of rage, he bit the girl back on the face. He also said that he bit Joan. And then he smashed Melissa over the head, the eight-year-old, with a stool when she continued to struggle against him. He said he didn't expect the three would put up such a fight. And they all fought until they succumbed to their inner injuries. Yes. God forbid people fighting for their lives are going to just accept yeah. cold fish against their attacker. Right? Like, so Craig said that during the murders, he accidentally stabbed his hand, which is how he got that injury. Mm -hmm. He removed the gloves he was wearing and tended to his injuries in the bathroom. And he didn't realize that he left a trail of blood and sock prints behind him. So evidence collected at the crime scene was later found to support all of Craig's story. Right. The blood analysis conducted by Dr. Lee showed that some of the blood samples matched Craig's blood. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, Craig's shoe size was the exact same right. as the sock prints. So there was no doubt he was telling the truth. Right. Craig further admitted to covering the, the bodies with blankets, then tried to clean up the crime scene with towels, but feared that if he stayed too long, police would catch him. Mm -hmm. He quickly gathered the knives, gloves, and some of the bloody towels and put them in a bag and sprinted. He returned to his house, which was a few houses away. He confessed that he hid the, his blood-soaked clothes in a bag in the attic. So one bag had the stuff, the other bag had his clothes, and detectives found that bag in the exact location that Craig said it would be in the attic. Right. When asked about Rebecca Spencer, Craig again surprised everyone and admitted that he had killed her which means that he was 13 years old when he committed his first murder. Wow. So he had no difficulty remembering the first murder, even though it was two years ago and he was right. 13. He provided investigators with details of the night, showing little remorse the whole time. So per a CNN article in 2007, quote, even today, Craig's taped confession sounds chillingly surreal. 
In a nonchalant, matter-of-fact drawl, he describes the night of terror in the Heaton home. He tells how he bit Heaton's face as he knifed her. He mimics the last sounds of the dying girls. He whines about cutting his hand. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So... Police and prosecutors celebrate the capture of him, right? Mm. Rhode Island's most notorious serial killer at the time. Right. At that moment. In that moment. Mm-hmm. But then they're reminded of a problematic reality. Despite the brutal murders that he committed, he'd never face jail. He'd never go to prison. Because he confessed to his crimes just weeks before his 16th birthday. And according to Rhode Island state law... All the courts could do was hold him in a training school until his 21st birthday and no longer. If you're below the age of 16, you can't be tried as an adult. Right. So after five years, Craig would be a free man with a clean record and would resume his life as if the murders had never occurred. Okay. Apparently the law was on his side and he even knew it, boasting, quote, when I get out, I'm going to smoke a bomber. He yelled at a crowd as he was let out handcuffed from the courthouse. And for those of you who don't know drugs or don't do drugs like me, and I had to Google that, Mm. according to Urban Dictionary, a bomber is when you roll a very generous amount of marijuana into a joint. I learned something new. Finally. (laughs) You went to purchase and you didn't realize that. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I guess we don't call them bombers at purchase. No, we we just call that a good time. (laughs) So... Okay, so then what happened? So then, even though Craig could not be tried for the murder, he still had to undergo a court hearing before he could be placed in what's called training school, I guess, juvenile detention, the equivalent of juvenile detention. Craig was ordered to serve five years at the Rhode Island Training School's Youth Correctional Center, mm-hmm. a maximum security detention facility. He mm-hmm. was also ordered to undergo intense psychological examination and therapy. However, he refused treatment and he refused to officially discuss the murders at all by pleading the Fifth Amendment. He withdrew from the diagnostic and treatment program arranged by the judge on the advice of his lawyers. According to court documents, the reasoning behind the decision was based on fears that the psychiatric examination might, quote, result in his being placed in a psychiatric facility for commitment beyond his 21st birthday. Okay. Which, you know, that's not an incorrect assumption because they really were looking for ways to keep him locked up because district attorney Jeffrey Pine, at the time district attorney, along with the victim's families and the lead investigator of the Heaton family murders, Captain Kevin Collins, joined forces and lobbied the Rhode Island legislator to institute new bills to prevent Craig's release and others like him. In 1990, Jeffrey Pine, the district attorney, and Captain Kevin Collins were key figures in instigating the passing of the O'Neill Bill, which toughened sentences on teenage murders. Okay. They made efforts to let the public know that Craig Price and the murders, uh, to know about Craig Price and the murders because juvenile offenders' records are sealed. So they went out and told people what happened on their own. And specifically, they wanted laws changed for the future. So within a month of Craig's arrest, the the state legislator passed a law allowing juveniles to be tried in adult court for serious crimes, which had been unsuccessful up until then. So it took him murdering people for them to finally pass something like this that could, you know, potentially try juveniles as adults. So, however, 
even though they passed this bill, you can't apply laws retroactively. So they knew that this law would not affect Craig. It would affect future offenders, but not him. So they were also going around spreading word and protesting about Craig and, you know, specifically what he had done and what to be done with him. Mm-hmm. To the point that by 1993, you know, a few months before Craig is scheduled to be released, then President Bill Clinton, when he made a visit to the state, was greeted with signs and a circling plane, like protest signs, and a circling plane with a sign that said, alert, killer of four, Craig Price moving here. So obviously the president can't ignore that now because it's in his face. Of course. And in a televised interview, President Clinton expressed dismay at the situation and suggested that the records of juvenile offenders maybe should not be sealed, but publicly accessible. And he also mentioned that laws needed to be changed to prevent juveniles with a violent history from purchasing firearms. Now, I don't know what the firearms thing has to do with anything, considering Craig killed with knives, but I guess... I don't know, for the future to make sure he's not as dangerous as he could be, maybe? I I don't know. So just 15 days after Clinton aired his comments, Rhode Island lawmakers reviewed bills concerning public access to juvenile criminal records and juvenile gun laws. Mm -hmm. However, the problem concerning Craig was still unanswered. Because again, you're doing all these things that can't be applied retroactively to him. Right. So... In 1992, our district attorney, Jeffrey Pine, was elected attorney general. Right. He pushed for legislation to allow judges to consider criminal records in deciding whether someone should be committed to a psychiatric hospital, known as the Craig Price Bill, which Mm -hmm. passed in 1994. Okay. Wesley Prophet, a Massachusetts psychiatrist who examined... Craig, on behalf of the state, wrote in 1990 that Craig was a killer who was, quote, in a psychotic rage at the time of the murders. He was in dire need of extensive treatment and even then may not be in a position to be safely placed in the community. So this report were more tools for the attorney general now, Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. And as we recall, on the advice of his court-appointed lawyer, Craig refused a court order to undergo further psychological testing, fearing the results would be used to commit him for life. So his refusal now allowed our attorney general to file a contempt of court charges. Okay. When Craig flew in... So in 1994, the charges were filed. And then when Craig... He, like, flies into a rage, basically. Like, he's testifying... He goes crazy in front of the judge, in front of everybody there, Mm -hmm. and he threatens to snuff out a correction, quote, quote, unquote, snuff out a corrections officer. And at that point, our attorney general, Jeffrey Pine, seizes the opportunity to then file extortion charges. I know it's a reach, but like. (laughs) Listen. You sometimes have to take opportunities when you take opportunities. Exactly. And it happened in front of everybody. The judge was there. He's like. Let's extortion. You're trying to extort my um, corrections officer now because you're threatening to snuff him out. So he's like, uh, extortion on top of that. Boom. So, and because on top of that, our attorney general, who, who was district attorney, he's dealing with the growing public demand for action. 
fueled by fear of Craig's imminent release. Media reports described the young killer's life behind bars stoked the fear. So, Mm. like, the articles, the the media were not helping. So everyone's like, what are you going to do about this motherfucker? There were stories in the media about how Craig had beefed up to 300 pounds by lifting weights, how he made a controversial rap video about killing a cop, how he boasted freely about, quote, making history when he was released. Now, I should note that while Craig was in this training camp school thing, which is equivalent of the juvenile detention, he had a really good behavior record. And when you have good behavior, obviously you're allowed certain freedoms, Mm -hmm. which is how he was able to make his rap video. But once the public learned about all the freedoms he was being given or privileges, they protested and all of his privileges were taken away. So Patrick Youngs, who was the one prosecuting the extortion case and still works for the attorney general's office today in court, Craig by now had a new lawyer, Robert Mann, who was apparently one of the state's most respected civil rights advocates with a reputation for taking on tough cases. Mm -hmm. So in court, Robert Mann accused the attorney general's office and our prosecutor of Mm -hmm. twisting the laws to selectively prosecute Craig. But like, so would I. Like, this dude killed a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old and bashed the 8-year-old skull in. Like, I would make it my life's mission to make sure that this guy never sets foot outside of prison. So, like, it's not incorrect that they're kind of targeting him, but, like, they're targeting him for good reason, you know? So, Craig, at this case about the extortion, was found guilty by a jury. He delivered a belligerent, rambling diatribe about how he had paid his dues to society and how he was now being persecuted because of his race. Right. Because he was black and the victims were white. (sighs) Craig was sentenced to 15 years for the extortion and the um, failing to appear for psychiatric evaluation. He was sentenced to 15 years for that and spent his 21st birthday in the adult correctional institution. Patrick Youngs, the prosecutor, is quoted as saying, people said we bent the system. We didn't. We did our best within the rules. Which, I mean, you kind of bent the rules a little bit. A little bit. You kind of did, but at the same time, You did, like, excessive stuff for something that would be minor. Like, extortion wouldn't... You wouldn't get... You and I wouldn't get 15 years for that. No, we wouldn't. But... So... For oh sorry no I was saying but it, it it's somewhat justified I mean come on let, let's let's think of one of the other famous cases Capone man known for murder blackmail extortion everything what is the, what do we nail him on taxes taxes <laughs> like tax evasion literally exactly it wasn't the result you want but you still got yeah the goal you got you were yeah seeking. exactly so for more than a decade the state continued to find creative ways to charge and convict Craig. The criminal contempt charge stemming from Craig's earlier refusal to submit the psychiatric testing right. went forward. That mm-hmm. brought, unfortunately, a one-year sentence, but whatever. He's got 16 now. Right. And then Craig himself kind of added more time to himself okay. by fighting in prison, which led to assault charges. So the state even took the unusual step of charging Craig with violation of probation while he was in prison. <laughs> And like, I get it. Like, I get it. Y'all are trying real hard. And every conviction added just a little bit more time. Right. But every conviction also brought more headlines about the state's tireless efforts to protect the public from Craig or, as Craig would see it, persecuting him. Mm. 
So several of his appeals actually went to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. uh, state Supreme Court, sorry. And every time, Craig lost. His lawyer, Robert Mann, wasn't the only one who was questioning the lengths to which the state went, but lawmakers, prosecutors, and judges were faced with an agonizing dilemma. What should society do with a psychopathic killer that it can't legally lock up for life? Right. So in May 1997, Craig appeared before Chief District Court Judge Robert DeRobio after a jury convicted him of criminal contempt. Okay. The Craig Price sentencing, he said, was the most difficult decision of his career. Contempt charges usually result in a fine, not jail time. But the state was asking the judge to put Craig away for life. So the judge could outweigh public health and safety, but not public fear. Right. So he could take into account the murders, but he could not sentence Craig for those crimes. Quote, I did not feel that I could in conscience sentence him to life on a contempt charge, which makes sense because you can't. You can bend the law a little bit, but you can't break it. Yeah. So he's the one that gave actually 25 years, but he only... He would, like, serve 10 and then the remaining 15 if Craig, you know, got into trouble or refused treatment. So he's the one who handed down the sentence of the 15 years. Right. So Craig has written written many letters over the years to judges, prison officials, and the media complaining about his incarceration. And long ago, he says he paid his debt for his juvenile crimes. I'm sorry. I don't think his the victims' families would agree with you on that. Quote, the state was effectively organized not to rehabilitate me, but to incarcerate me, he said in 2004. They were looking for anything to lock me up. Today, in the state of Rhode Island, a 15-year-old serial killer would immediately be referred to adult court and likely sentenced to life without parole, all because of Craig Price. In October 1998, February 1999, and October 2001, Craig received more years to his sentence for assaulting corrections officers, Originally, he was scheduled to be released in February 2022. At first, it was like December 2021. Then Mm -hmm. it was February 2022. However, in April of 2017, Craig stabbed a fellow inmate, Joshua Davis, with a homemade five-inch knife blade at the Suwannee Correctional Institution, which is in Florida, and he had to be shipped there due to his notoriety in Rhode Island. And for this crime, in January 2019, he was sentenced to 25 years. I'd like to thank the Associated Press, Spokane Chronicle, CNN, Murderpedia, Rachel Bell, CrimeLibrary.com, Target 12, WPRI, Tim White, Providence Journal, Katie Mulvaney, and good old Wiki. Wow. And here's the 25 more years for you, Craig, you piece of shit. (laughs) He's essentially the reason why he's still in jail. Like, if he didn't do anything else... They would have nothing on him. Absolutely. But he, but he keeps playing their game. Uh, also, I'd like to correct something I said earlier. Uh, uh, Julius Caesar was stabbed 23 times, not 37. <laughs> I'm, I'm very much a stickler for historical accuracy. So but, he stabbed these women and children more times than Julius Caesar was stabbed by his own... By his own people. People. Multiple times. But the point being is that in the end, you have this person who did something horrible when they were just a teenager mm-hmm. and then later on and you know the crazy thing if he had said nothing about it he might have gotten away with it if he had not, if he had a better cover-up story people they might not have even looked into it was like oh well maybe like i actually cut myself with uh 
doing the dishes or... Yeah, I dropped a plate. I cut my hand. Yeah, or I was cutting a bagel and I wasn't paying attention and the blade slipped through and uh, cut my palm. But he you bragged know. to a friend and because of that... Again, the notoriety, mm-hmm. the celebrity status, the wanting to be seen as a threat is greater than common sense. And it's what trips him up. It's pride. Yeah. Pride trips him up. And then on top of it, his anger keeps getting the best of him. You know, no one's picking these fights with these inmates. But again, he's in a place where it's a pecking order. You want to establish yourself as a top dog. Yeah, yeah. And I feel bad for a lot of the the the, the judge who had the real trouble because, you know, again. Morally, want, how do you do that? You, you want to follow the law, but you also, it's hard not to let bias and then the media also play a factor and in your public decision. fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I totally, I totally get everyone's stance on this. Absolutely. I mean, now, if someone today was a 15 or 13 year old and committed a crime like this, they'll go to adult court. jail and adult court and, you know, be sentenced appropriately, probably. But at the time, they couldn't. Well, and because he confessed to it before his 16th birthday. I mean, how rare is that? You had, you had not just the murderer confess, but you also had the murderer recount how they did it with no he, remorse and then complain about his, how he cut his hand yeah uh, and you know who else would complain your victims how they don't have any life anymore just oh saying. right they can't because they're dead because they're dead yeah and it's just so disheartening to hear this but again this is the evil that that lies out there mm-hmm. and that's the thing is that the the awareness is important you know, not everyone is a monster, but you have to know that such people are out there. People who think nothing of this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, Craig mm-hmm. might have been a good, you know, raised in a good family. Mm-hmm. Might have had everything he could ever ask for. Sometimes it is a product of the environment. Poor environment, poor role models, you know, abuse yeah. of any kind. And sometimes it's you're just wired. I don't want to say wrong, but there's just something about you that. The circuit correct. didn't connect and, correctly. Exactly. And they do these things. Yeah. And they think that's totally normal. Yeah. You know? And it's just... I mean, clearly his own father thought this was horrible. He went to throw up. He couldn't even come back. Right. He was so shocked. So to me, it sounds like he came from a fairly good well place. family, like fairly good family. His mother was sobbing, sitting next to him, listening to him recount all this. Well, yeah. Like, it doesn't seem like he comes from a terrible family, I mean, I guess we don't know what happens behind closed doors, but like still, no matter what you've been through, you... It does justify the taking of someone's life. And especially not like like that. Yeah, that's like... I can understand in self-defense you might kill somebody accidentally. Yeah, but 58 times. That's that's basically... And 60, how many did the... I'm sorry, how many did the 10-year-old get? 60, she got like 60, like 60-something stab wounds, 60... Right. 62. She was stabbed 62 times, the the 10-year-old. same thing like when somebody shoots someone, one bullet, right? Yeah. But if you empty your clip and then reload, you're no longer acting. uh, This isn't isn't just a murder. This is revenge. This This is justice in your mind. I am leveling the playing field. And it's just so disappointing. But in the end... And you tell me that a lot of the times, a lot of true crimes don't get solved. You never find the murderer or it's left open. I mean, these days it's so much easier thanks to forensic evidence. Yeah. And in in the 80s, the fact being is you had your killer. And he's a stranger. 
Yeah. You had Which are the hardest ones to solve. Right. You had your killer. Yep. You had the weapons he killed with. Mm-hmm. Evidence that linking him to the crime scene and a confession, and not just any confession, a video recorded confession. Mm-hmm. And it's disappointing that that it took so long to kind of really do it. And we did have to, I admit, they had to bend the laws a little bit in order to nail this guy. But some good came out of it. Now, like you said, if somebody does something like this again, there is no debate. Mm-hmm. There is no... Uh, security blanket protecting them you murder you go straight to jail mm-hmm. you get tried mm-hmm. as an adult because mm-hmm. you made an adult decision yeah you made a horrible horrible crime exactly so so yeah our condolences to the family of and course. craig and i hope craig. you get another 25 years <laughs> with another homemade shiv yep so For real, he's like in his 40s now all right cool stand there another 40 years please please so, please um, and let's do a little plug in between here. Strangelittleworlds.com. SLW podcast on the social media. <laughs> I don't know how to segue this. I'm sorry. <laughs> Very nice. Check us out if you haven't already. Leave us a comment on what you think about Craig and his awful temper. Very nice, Danny. Take Very, it away, Drew. Very smooth. <laughs> you can't just say this for the end. You got you to radio it. Like, I did. I'm trying to like do a segue between my story and your story, but like it never works out for me. Do yourself a favor, (laughs) sip your water. You know what? I will. Yeah. All right. So for my story, we're checking into a hotel. Uh, This hotel is on 11 Dorrance Street in Providence, Rhode Island. Hey. And this is what is, well, for the story, we're going to call this the Providence Biltmore Hotel. Okay. Okay. So. There are a few things here. So we're going to start with two histories. We're going to start with the first history, which is more of the official ownership slash construction history. And then we're going to go with the secret history. (gasps) Secret history. Yes, ma'am. So the Providence Biltmore was constructed by the Bowman Biltmore Hotels chain, which is founded by John McEntry Bowman and Louis Wallach. It was built in uh, the neo-federal beau art style and was designed by the architectural firm of Warren and Wetmore, who we know as the gentleman who helped design Grand Central Station. Ah, I was like, how do I know that name? Exactly. I was like, that's the only name I recognized. (laughs) Yeah. So the hotel opens June 6th, 1922, and it was the second tallest building in the city after the Rhode Island State House mm. until the industrial trust tower was finished six years later. Mm-hmm. So you have a front page story in the June 6th, 1922 edition of the Providence Journal reporting on the banquet and the ball that's opening the Biltmore. It's predicting this is going to be the social event of the year. Ooh. 1,000 people show up, including local officials, prominent New York uh, City hoteliers, like as the it's called. Who? To mark the occasion, the building was illuminated from top to bottom with more than 25,000 lights. Damn. Exactly. This was, wait, what year? This is 1922. Wow. Beautiful. That must have been expensive for that time, that many lights? Good Mm -hmm. Lord. So the hotel was originally built with around 600 rooms because they're expecting this is going to be a posh. Very wow. So later on, walls were knocked down, suites were created. Right now, it's at 292 rooms. Wow. So we went from that to that. So. 
were like, Crazy. Mm, we don't have a lot of people. Indeed. <laughs> the hotel con- contains banquet space of over 19,000 square feet. Um, that's 1,800 milliliters for any of our other people who really need to see that. Meters, you mean? Or? Yeah, whatever. Meters, milliliters. Okay. Milliliters is I a, was a C student a in volume. math. Okay. You know what? Next time you get the ruling. International listeners, we apologize. We're not good. We America, we're not good with meters and milliliters and kilograms. All right. All right. All right. Go on. Go on. That's fair. We're really not. <laughs> The rooftop level Grand Ballroom offers this fantastic view of the city and the, the Kennedy Plaza. I can hold up to 750 guests. Its event space was designed for functions such as weddings, banquet service, and conferences. The, the garden room at the Biltmore once housed famous orchestra leaders like Benny Goodman and Jimmy Dorsey. The dance floor, fun fact, was once turned into a giant aquarium complete with live fish for a performance by Esther Williams, who at that time was known as Hollywood's million-dollar mermaid. What? True story. Look, How look are her you up. a million-dollar mermaid? I guess she was just very fishy. Ba-dum-bum-tsh. Ba-dum-tsh. Exactly. For a, the Olympic skater Sonia Heine's ice show, that's her real name, by the way. Oh, okay. The floor was actually frozen solid in the ballroom. This is, yeah. This Holy is a crap. crazy place. And in the late 1920s, another fun fact, the hotel's first manager planted a vegetable garden and installed pens for chickens and ducks on the roof of the Biltmore, or Biltmore, to offer the diners fresh local fare. A local cutting garden provided flesh, 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 oh boy, (laughs) fresh flowers. Flesh flowers? Oh, goodness. Yeah. Would you like a bacon flower? <laughs> you, you have to stop. For the public and get in, and for their guest rooms. Plans for a small dairy herd never materialized. Can you imagine? Oh. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the roof garden was not without its problems. Uh, there used to sometimes be the occasional escape of violently flapping chickens over oh. the parapet. Uh, parapet. 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 Into, I'm just horrible today <laughs> with these big, big words. Me it's no, like a balcony. Me no talk good. <laughs> a parapet is, is a basically a balcony. Yeah, yeah. Into Washington Street traffic. And there in 1927, there was the exodus of the entire flock of ducks Excellent. over the Narragansett Bay. Oh. Despite these problems, the roof garden actually flourished well into the 30s. Having given up on cows in the living in space, Wallach settled for a goat to supply the diners with fresh milk. Perhaps... You know- yeah. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You know another hotel that used to provide fresh, fresh, oh. not, um, actually fresh honey, the Waldorf Astoria had their own honeybees on the roof. Oh, really? In New York City. I did not know that. Yeah. Cause, um, well, my, the law firm I used to work at did mm-hmm. the visa for the, the chef. Wow. <laughs> the honeybee person. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now it's under construction, so I don't know what happened, but. But that's still pretty cool. Right. Like. Right. So hotels like do weird stuff like that all the time. Yeah. It was pretty crazy. Like, and perhaps encouraged by the wave of interest, Wallach enlarged the experiment to include, and I kid you not, a fish pond, alligators, monkeys, and even a brown bear. So you literally could have your own little mini petting zoo. On top of your hotel. Holy crap. Right? Holy crap. Right? And flesh flowers. <laughs> Never going to live that down. 
Sounds like something Clive Barker would have created for Hellraiser. It sounds like exactly. Enjoy the flowers made of flesh. flesh. But fresh flowers, if they had honeybees, they would make some great honey. Indeed. So, uh, of course, in terms of true crime, there was, of course, uh, according to FBI files, legendary New England crime boss Raymond Patriarca worked as a bellboy at the Biltmore Hotel after dropping out of school. His brother, Joseph, would later host a 400-person wedding at the hotel, which was then, in the 60s, known as the Sheraton Biltmore. Uh, it was on June 19th. 1961. So, you know, be beware who's your bellhop, boys. I don't know these people. Well, he was a famous crime lord. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, uh, so famous, I don't know him. Exactly. <laughs> well, you don't know every crime in the world. Yet. It's true. It's true. So, in 1938 and 1954, there were two hurricanes that actually flooded the grand lobby of the <gasps> Biltmore. And one in 1938 was the Great Hurricane. In 1954, it was Hurricane Carol. According to the Biltmore's history, and I quote, the 1954 hurricane flooded the building with water pouring down into the elevator shafts. Couches floated through the fall staff room, drifted out into the lobby, and just stopped short of the revolving doors. End quote. A plaque high up on the lobby columns commemorates the high water's mark of eight feet. Wow. That's that's pretty intense. That is, yeah. <laughs> so that's like Hurricane Sandy stuff. Exactly. Holy crap! I never forgot the fact that there were actually people using legit canoes during that. <laughs> like, I just imagine that guy saying, "Y'all made fun of me, but today, but today's the day. <laughs> I'm the winner now. <laughs> I'm canoeing through the city. You're welcome." <laughs> <laughs> that definitely pulls to the drive-through. So, are you open? Cause- <laughs> Because I like a McBiscuit, please. Hello. Knock, knock. It's empty. <laughs> 1975, the Biltmore closed and remained vacant for about four years. At one point, oh. with it almost facing demolition, <gasps> Mayor Buddy Cianci helped with efforts to design to designate the hotel as a landmark and assembled a group of local businessmen who purchased it and implemented uh, tax credits to rehabilitate the building, reopening it in 1979 as the Biltmore Plaza. Okay. Their now known glass elevator was added during the rehabilitation and serves all 18 floors of the hotel, although it no longer runs. So that's just a really nice little... Glass looking. That's some scary stuff right there. So in 1983, the owners retained retained Dumfries Hotels to manage the property, and then it was now named Billmore Plaza, a Dumfries Hotel. Soon after, the Dumfries owner... They purchased the Omni Hotels change. Then it's now the Omni Biltmore Hotel. So in the 90s, Omni Biltmore is fully owned by the Providence Journal. Okay. Now, do you remember that guy we mentioned before, the mayor, Buddy? Yeah, Sinanti? yeah. Who He's re- an yeah. infamous Providence figure because he lived at the at suite for years during the oh. 90s, 2000s, during his time as the mayor, and also during his corruption trial. Ooh. Like most politicians, apparently. <laughs> oh, no. Yep. Buddy, not you. Pretty much. <laughs> so they sell the hotel, the Grand Heritage uh, chains, in 1995 for $7 million, And then now it's the Providence Biltmore. Okay. So that's sold out of receivership. But there's a lot of back and forth here. Right, right. So new investments, like $10 million in, in renovations. So 
Essentially, we're going to catch you up because I know you all don't want to hear this. So 2017. Well, it's, it's kind of like that hotel in um, in Dutchess that like, you know, bought, sold, bought, sold, sold, went bought, vacant so, for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right now in 2017, it's sold to AJ Capital Partners, which was a Chicago based hotel and real estate firm. $43.6 million. Wow. It's renovated and renamed the Graduate Providence on April 2nd, 2019. So we're now coming up. We're Okay. Uh, it's part of their chain, but the new owners have retained the hotel's iconic neon Biltmore sign. Okay. And it is now the ninth tallest building in Rhode Island. Oh. So this is where we are now. So it's technically, if you're looking for it, guys, it's called the Graduate Providence, but we, for the all extent purposes are going to just call it the uh, the Biltmore Hotel. The Biltmore, yeah. Well, right. it's still got the neon sign, so why not? Exactly. I mean, it's the same thing like the hotel that I stayed with in Chicago, which future mini episode plug. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, you know, it's still the Congress Plaza Hotel, and it's got that neon right. sign up top. Yeah. You don't see a lot of those anymore. You really don't, because I think it became a little. I don't know when it became tacky, but it became tacky. Stylistically, think, yeah, to like the people who designed hotels, they were like, "Oh no, that's tacky. I don't want to do that." Yeah, it's it's kind of sad because I feel like like a lot of the regular chains you already know, you already know what a Marriott is, mm-hmm. you already know what a Sheraton, exactly or... all of that. <laughs> but I think it's kind of nice, especially when certain, especially you see it in a lot of older hotels. Yeah. So you know, so I've seen photos of it. It's 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 it adds to the somewhat ominousness of this Ooh. hotel, which we're about to get into. <laughs> Where's the ghost? <laughs> We're coming. I, you really going into that New England right here. <laughs> so now, Danny, I know you were excited when I told you that there's another history to this place. Mm-hmm. So during the construction uh, in about 1918, we have a, a person involved in it. His name is Johann Liss Weisskopf, who is famously known to be a very open about it Satanist. Okay. Oh, oh. He, uh, oh. <laughs> yep, Danny well. is not expecting that. That's why I withhold details from her, just to see her face. He gives me spoilers, and I think I know, and then I know Flip nothing. Flip it. <laughs> I'm Jon Snow. I know nothing. You know nothing. <laughs> Danny G, you know nothing. So he makes a decision to help finance the construction of the Biltmore. So this is, remember, this opens in 1922. We're in 1918. So this is the prequel Okay, so our open Satanist it. is helping to finance it. Okay. So it was public knowledge that the building's purpose was to educate the New England community about Satanism and its perks, mm. as he was a follower of Alistair Cowley, who was a well-known Satanist himself. I know this person. I know this name. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I know this name. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that later. Oh, no. So the hotel was even designed with religious considerations, including a chicken coop on the roof to supply plentiful sacrifices for weekly, weekly, weekly <laughs> rituals. I'm getting so invested in the story, I can't even say the words because I'm just I'm speeding up so fast. Slow down. Our it's listeners. funny because you can say the names, but now you can't pronounce the other words. Usually it's the names that we can't pronounce exactly. in the show. <laughs> So there were underground altars, including dugout springs used for cleansing rituals, and the famous Bakken, okay, Bakente, uh, it's Greek, Bakanite. Okay, hold on, I'm just going to turn my computer on. Baklava? I don't know. Like that word right there, what is it? Wait, where? Bakanite? Bachanti? Bachanti? Okay. Probably saying it wrong, it sounds Greek. (laughs) It's it's B-A-C-C. H-A-N-T-E. Yeah, I'm just going to look I'm going to say 
Bachanti. <laughs> You're going to Google pronounce B- <laughs> I am. Do it. <laughs> Bacanti. Bacanti. Oh, Bacanti. Okay. 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 Thank you, Google. <laughs> the famous Bacanti dining room, which was home to a staff of nude waitresses, effectively known as the Bacanti girls. Oh. You're noticing a theme here. We just love, there's a lot of spookiness, sex, and murder. Kind of reminds me of the Zigfield Follies. <laughs> Again. Yep. All of Thomas. Yeah. The Folly Girls. So we're going to get into that. Oh, boy. The dining area was very intimate with dim lights and mirrored walls. Seating sections designed, the banquets were designed to hold at least two to eight people. When one wanted to be served, one pushed a button to mm-hmm. summon a Bacanti girl. Mm-hmm. She would appear in costume, which was usually a see-through skirt or a serving apron. The bar area had a glass floor. Just like, hey, hey. the Follies, Mm -hmm. which was underlit with pink lighting, a feature that would showcase, and I kid you not how this was written, the girls tantalizing his legs. I think it's because, again, this is a time when you don't really show a lot of skin. Yeah. So, like, you see an ankle bone, you're going to go nuts. You're like, oh, man. Holy cow. (laughs) And also, I feel like they didn't have too many print style Mm -hmm. naked, like, not too many people would see... I think again, each it, other naked. It's an it's an era of, of extreme uh, conservativeness. So again, yeah. you know, which is why like places like this f- worked very well. I like guess. a man would never have seen a woman unless he walked into a place like that. Basically, pretty much, literally. So John F. Kennedy and his Navy buddies uh-huh. would sometimes drive up to the Biltmore on weekends to party at the Bacant Room, <laughs> and see home some of legs. the famous Bacant girls. Yes, indeed. <laughs> So they were stationed at the training center in the nearby Melville, Rhode Island. So other famous names such as Douglas Fairbanks, F. Scott, and Zelda Fitzgerald, and Louis Armstrong were also seen dining there through the time. Considering its reputation, it could have might as well been called the Bacant Orgy Pit. (laughs) Oh, ew. Nasty. Okay. So that's the sex. I just had a horrible image. Thank you very much. You know, especially Louis Armstrong. I just picture him in the back, like all sad, doing his little. <laughs> just playing. <laughs> just playing a tune. <laughs> so, adding to the controversy of this new hotel, as was also its use as a popular speakeasy during Prohibition. Of course. Of course. I feel like that should be a given. It really is. A mob affiliation guaranteed that some terrible shit went down that hotel. During its days as a speakeasy, it attracted many high powered men in both law and government to its underground bar. High alcohol, blood levels, and a lax attitude for the normal laws created a truly unstable environment Mm -hmm. that festered a a breeding ground for crime. According to my research, during this time, multiple murders saw at least six police officers implicated in the crimes. (gasps) Further murders occurred, including the drowning of an 11-year-old prostitute. (gasps) Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Pro- yep. Yep. It's a tough time. Uh, e- so. Yeah, we didn't really have those laws back then, did we? No, we did not. Mm. Even a mayor, a governor, and a cardinal were implicated in certain murder, as well as several sexual assault accusations. Mm. So legend uh, I has I mean, it, I, would, I assumed those happened, indeed. actually. Legend has it that all these deaths resulted in the hauntings um, where people would sometimes see spirits of murder victims probably trapped within the Biltmore, which doesn't surprise me at all. I Honestly. No. Um, suicide 
We'll also account to some of the Biltmore Hotel's ghost tally. Okay. Uh, on October 25, like, he was like, okay, I'm scared now. <laughs> I'm like, this is a, this is a fucked hotel. <laughs> I mean, the mob getting involved, I got it. But as soon as you said 11-year-old prostitute was murdered, this hotel is haunted for life. Yeah. So on October 21st, 1929, there was a stock, there was a stock market crash, which resulted right. in an unknown financial worker throwing himself from the 14th floor of the Biltmore Hotel. <gasps> no one knows who he... It was told that this crash severely crippled the man's financial status, that he couldn't cope, that, you know, the only de- exit was death. Yeah. His identity is still unknown. <gasps> but he but he left behind a legacy that he's now one of the Biltmore's most well-documented ghosts. Though he leapt from his floor yeah. on the 14th floor on his room, his apparition has been seen spotted all throughout the hotel. Many guests in the lower levels also claim to sight a man's body. Some plummet past their windows, only to rush over and, and see nothing He's on the street. He's still jumping. <gasps> still caught in a suicide loop. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, come on. You know, Catholics are one of the first ones to always say suicide is a sin. So, yeah. you know. Yeah. We have seen yet to see evidence that this is actually true, but we'll, you know. <laughs> So in addition... We're just quoting a religion that says something. Yeah, something. Yeah. In addition to Phantom Falling Man, as I called him, right. and many other murder victims roaming the hotel, reports of unexplained paranormal activity exist and have been well documented. Around the witching hour, many have claimed to hear the sounds of crazed parties coming from empty rooms. This includes the sounds of heavy stomping, as if drunken groups of dancers are, are taken it to the floor and glasses right. clinking from long toasts. Many have heard and even cited apparitions of ghostly dancers gliding across the hotel grand ballroom between midnight and 2 a.m. Wow. The period that paranormal investigators uh, call, I don't know if I've ever said this, it's called dead time. Dead time, okay. Mm-hmm. Catchy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so some guests of the hotel uh, supposedly disappear at night and are never found. <gasps> Uh, more spooky occurrences have been corroborated by staff members and described by past guests and online review sites. The the guests disappearing and never being found, I'm a little skeptical about that because, again, people come and go in life all the time. Yeah, so I only found one case. And reading it, I I, I have to be honest with you, Suspicious. being a believer, it, it was a little too coincidental, mm. some of it. So I didn't include that in this report. But if you guys want to look that up. You know, definitely check that out. Okay. The place has also supposedly been inspiration for many people when creating spooky or haunted hotels. The one that most obviously it's been rumored, nothing has been confirmed, that it helped was one of the inspirations for the Overlook Hotel and Stephen King Shining. Oh. Which personally, Stephen King has said there were other hotels. So to me, I'm like, I can mm. see where he might, especially not going to lie, the haunted ballroom Definitely. Yeah. yeah, that's like ding ding right there yeah, in The Shining. I, exactly. I still always think of that whenever I uh, I think, think of The ha- Shining. Well, no, there's a scene. The scene is Shining that always freaked <coughs> me out a little bit that they referenced and later in the movie sequel Doctor Sleep was you had Horace DeWitt who was one of the head guys at the 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 Overlook, just like a rotting corpse, drinking, covered in confetti, and just great party, ain't it? And I'm just oh, yeah. like. <laughs> Nightmares. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. Also, supposedly the Bates 
Motel, created by Robert Block, might have been inspired by it. Again, there's no official thing saying yes. Right. So these are all rumors, but you can kind of see how. Right, right. That makes sense. And funny enough, the Biltmore, uh, because I mentioned if you love craft, does host a Lovecraft-inspired convention called the Necronami Con. Uh Celebrating the fiction and academia in H.P. Lovecraft's town, Providence, Rhode Island. Oh. So... Nice. Now, these are all crazy stories and whatnot, but since the Biltmore has been around for so long, I said there has to be eyewitness accounts. Of course. And I looked online and I found quite quite a few. I found some that I feel that our users would really enjoy. Okay. Our users, our listeners. Our users. <laughs> I'm going to read some of them and yes. uh, I'm going to see which one gets the best reaction from Danny. <laughs> Uh, user, Here we go. <laughs> indeed. User Lori K. from Stratford, Connecticut, described at her stay feeling a soft padding motion around her pillowed head like a dog slowly stepping before being jumped off and proceeded to scrabble about the bathroom floor. The incident woke up her boyfriend, who is now, quote, no longer a skeptic. <laughs> Similar stories abound on more underground forums uh, with Ghost Providence, Doc. Blogspot being one of the most comprehensive. The comments sections under the 2009 entry on the Biltmore is one of the most active on the website with past and prospective visitors sharing their experiences. User Sarita Moldavan reported waking up at 1.15 a.m. after feeling pressure on her eyes and again at 3 a.m. struggling to breathe under the weight of what felt like a man pressing down on me. Wow. User, and excuse me because this is still the cheese muffin. (laughs) Described an actual sighting inspired by rumors of ghostly activity on the 16th floor. They went up to investigate, heard loud giggling, at which point Cheese Muffin says, I swear I saw a ghost fly by. Wow. Another usual user called Cal points to the abundance of YouTube videos showing door slamming and curtains fluttering as evidence of paranormal activity. Cal also offers a story. While attending an alums conference at Albert Medical School, Cal woke between 2 and 3 a.m. to find the TV turned on to full volume, all the windows fully open with the curtains billowing, and the shower running. No one could have entered the room while I was asleep, Cal said, because the latch bolt was engaged. What? In the morning, the desk confirmed that similar situations had happened to the other guests as well. Wow. We've already addressed the disappearing and I never found I'm, yeah, that's the one thing that I'm a little skeptical about. Okay. Now, there was a book, which if you like what you hear, I definitely recommend checking it out, called Ghost Writers, The Hallowed Haunts of Unforgettable Literary Icons. Okay. Author Sam Beltrus visited the hotel with demonologist De- James Anito and his paranormal friend Russ Stiver. Regarding the top floor, which may have been the Satanist chicken coop and the subject of blood sacrifices and rituals, Anito said, most blood rituals are bad news. During a blood sacrifice, you're requesting a spirit or entity to come forward. When people conjure something, they think they contain it, but they can't. Oh. The entity plays to the human's request, but it's controlling your every step. The blood ritual creates a fundamental energy shift at a location and it amplifies the haunting. (coughs) This one is clearly getting the best reaction from Danny. (laughs) Regarding the large number of unreported deaths and suicides, Stiver, who is an empath at the set at the hotel, sordid activities have left an imprint on the building. When you walk into this place, you immediately feel the heaviness. Ooh, wow. 
And on that note, a special thank you to amyscrypt.com, golocalprov.com, graduatehotels.com, creepystories.com, goes to the Providence blog, cityfarmerinfo.com, and the historic taverns of Rhode Island by Robert A. Geek. So that's the Biltmore. Well then. What do you think, Danny? Never going there. Fair enough. Never ever going there. <laughs> I just cannot, cannot picture seeing a man falling down, looking out, being like, oh my God, 911, and there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. Like that just. They probably that's... got a few calls. Can you imagine? They yes. must have got a few calls. Like, oh my God, that. a man just slept to his death. Oh yeah, no, don't worry about that. Are you at the Biltmore? <laughs> yeah, that ma'am. You, you, yeah, you just, he does that once I mean, a week. what worse than you see, you can see a suicide and then you find out it's a ghost. Like for How me, I'm like, horrible. Um, I'm checking out early. <laughs> exactly. Like I just checked in. Yeah, no, I'm checking out. Checking out. But you just got here. Goodbye. For me, it was the like the history was crazy. Like it was financed by a satanist. A satanist. You know? And like, come on, you cannot, you cannot choose willingly to be a satanist. Like, you can't tame. I don't really believe in it, but. Even if it does exist, you cannot tame a supernatural being. It's not going to bend to your will. Well, I think that's, again, you know, just pure human arrogance. It's our selfish, yeah, our selfish arrogance, yeah. And, you know, that and then you the there's so much here that I would have been surprised if nothing happened. You have <laughs> yes. Satanist background. You have... The mob or mafia or whatever. You have, yeah, you have prohibition, mob, crimes. You have, I don't want to say sleazy, but if... Very interesting interpretation of a nightclub. <laughs> you have you have suicides, you have murders. Yes. Like I'm not gonna lie, I did think of the overlook because mm-hmm. that's in my mind when someone says haunted hotel, that's immediately what I jump to. Right. Because, you know, I just imagine like again, and then I'll I'll bring this up when I'm discussing the the Congress Plaza in Chicago in one of our special mini episodes. You feel there's a, there's a feeling when you go to these kind of places. You feel like you're being watched. Mm. Like, you know, like when, when you just it's it's kind of like that feeling when you're walking home and you 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 look around because you need yeah. to make sure that you're alone. Yeah. Yeah. When you're going to these places, you don't feel like you're alone. You feel like something there and your brain is like, am I is it a threat? Or I'm, is it, I'm just being aware. Yeah. And it's that, that buzzing. And it, you try telling it off, it's paranoia, but you can't shake it. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's like when you're walking home late, you get into your car and you're just like, you get that, you think, oh, you know, other people have died like this, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you just get in your car and you're fine. You're like, okay. That was just yeah. my spatial awareness. Yeah. And it was just my brain being like, hey, make sure to watch out for danger. Exactly. Yeah. But sometimes with that, it's, you, you can't explain, especially if it's someplace you've never been. How are you supposed to be, how can you be scared of somebody you've never been? And that's usually for me, like that internal alarm system of. And it's the added level of suspicion. Like it's, it's, you don't know if this is a safe place because you've never been here. Right. Right. So and it's, and then on top of that, you feel like there's something there. There's and something that would there. Just, that would just mess you up. Right. And there's just so much. So for me, I like, I know our, our. It's usually our policy that we don't really do the super popular ones because, again, people aren't, like, know about it. But this was too good to pass up. Yeah. Well, that's kind of why I did Craig. I mean, it wasn't super popular. I never heard of him. It's known to Rhode Island. But I'm like, you know what? Maybe a lot of our other listeners haven't heard because I didn't hear about him. And he's, like, a teenager. Right. Exactly. So it's the same thing with me. This was too far of a unique situation. And just doing the research was crazy. 
crazy. I mean, there were so many stories I couldn't even write down because like it'll literally be a three hour episode. You know, <laughs> just on spooky stuff. Just 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 on reading the stories, and then you know, not everybody has an occurrence. Sometimes yeah. you're just there. Maybe you're too dead to the world to notice shit's happening, <laughs> or sometimes you nothing happens. Yeah, you know, yeah. but you're not like open to it, so they're like, eh, I won't eh. appear to you. <laughs> well, that's the thing is is there's a difference between when it just happens and you're not looking for it, and there's people who go to these places like I want a supernatural experience, and I'm and like, they're like, do no. you? <laughs> really want this you know because my favorite is the ones where they go looking for it and nothing happens and they're like oh man well that's a bust exactly (laughs) my favorite is when they go looking for it and then they find out it's even worse than they thought oh god that's that's the worst you know that's the worst horror movies have literally literally built on that they're like yeah we're gonna find some spooky stuff holy crap yeah goodbye it's the blair witch all over again yes let's just go to the let's just you know we're three we're three people let's go into the woods and bring a camera (laughs) what could possibly go wrong (laughs) done so that's that's me so i'm i'm gonna close that book for now so your book creaks i didn't know that it it adds to the ambiance of the creepiness so i gotta oil it oil it Put a little oil on that book. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. But so now we're at the end. So let's do some thank yous before we wrap this up. Yes. So now we want to thank all of our listeners. So for the month of February, uh, I'd like to thank the states of Washington, California, Mm -hmm. Texas, Florida, Virginia, Washington, D.C., because it's not a state, but it's, you know, its own thing. It feels like its own thing. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, of course, North Carolina, Maine, Arizona, Alabama, Mm -hmm. Ohio, or maybe Indiana. The circle's kind of between them. I can't really tell. Mm -hmm. Maryland and Colorado. We're making it out in the Midwest slowly. Right? I mean, the East East Coast, we got. (laughs) We got. The East Coast is ours. But we're we're trying to get that West Coast The East Coast is in the bag. Now we got to get the West Coast and the mountains. We're trying to appeal to the heartland. (laughs) Exactly. You know. And then for countries. Okay. We've got England. Hey. Scotland, hey. hey, Canada, Bangladesh, nice, Sweden, France, and the Netherlands. We're getting fans in every country. Soon. We're getting, yeah, that's why we got to do the, we got to do meters my, and kilograms instead of inches. My and favorite feet. is going to be if we get somewhere like Alaska or Iceland. I'm like, it is cold out there, but <laughs> stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> you know, it'd be cool if we get like Iceland or Greenland or. Or, or Stranger. Alaska, Russia, well. SLW Global. Global. And then next thing we know, SLW Mars. <laughs> SLW. And do they listen to podcasts in China? Probably, Probably not. For, uh, yeah, I, maybe not American ones. Uh, we, um, we'll, we, the only one way to find out. <laughs> Someone sent us to China. <laughs> so thank you to all of you for listening to us for the thousand. We're going to definitely make it worth it when you want us to help us hit 2,000. Hey. So maybe even five thousand. Oh man, maybe oh. we'll aim for that ten k. <laughs> Thank you so much, everybody. We really appreciate it, and honestly, we're very excited to do more in Rhode Island. There's a lot of craziness coming. So my advice to you: don't listen to this at three a.m. because definitely you're not going to sleep well. Definitely not. But if you're listening to us at three a.m., you're already not sleeping well. So hey, hey, why not? <laughs> why not? Let the fear put you to sleep. <laughs> 
So, yeah, everyone. So be careful of teenage murderers in Rhode Island. And if you're going to go to the Biltmore, maybe go to a Holiday Inn. Maybe. 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 Well, thanks. Stay tuned, everybody. Thank and you. And follow us on... on... Oh, right, right. They social media. Yeah. Follow us on the social media. We are Strange Little Worlds, and we are everywhere. <laughs> I'm not going to give her that satisfaction. I mean, we are. We really are, though. Like, that's not a lie. I'm not going to give her that satisfaction. You're looking at me like, you're going to do the thing, right? And I'm like, screw you, Danny. You do the thing. (laughs) Okay. Apple Podcasts, which you already know because 50% of you listen to us on Apple. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the others. Leave us a rating, a, a rating and a review. Please. If you're on Apple... You, you can do that, okay? But if you're not on Apple, we're on podchaser.com. Especially if you have your own podcast, give us a review because then we can sh- shout you out and help you. Let us help you. <laughs> help we're us in, help you. <laughs> we're in the same business, okay? <laughs> Let you give us attention. We will give it back. Yes, yes. And our website is strangelittleworlds.com. On the social media, we are SLW Podcast. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're on all three. We're mostly active on Facebook and Instagram, though. Twitter, we're like, we don't really know what to do with it. (laughs) We don't know what to do with it, so it's there, though. But when we get bigger, we'll we'll start utilizing the tweets. Maybe. Possibly. I tweet, but I'm there. I just don't know what to do with it. We'll just rename our tweets Gravestones. (laughs) Gravestones. Well, thanks for listening to us, and we'll see you next time. Indeed. More Rhode Island on the way. Later. Bye. In a strange little world where sometimes crimes are unsolved and murders unbound. You know what I was thinking? I was thinking totally inappropriate. Mm. It was going to have like a mini so, but instead of us telling a story, like I put together, I put together all the photos of every actor who's played um, a fictional detective on like a a TV show, not a movie. Right. You'd gather all the female ones. And then we show and go smash or pass. So you would, to the male yes. ones, you go please, smash. Can we please do that? <laughs> no, I'm telling you, one time. Like I say, like, you know, what's his name? Christian Christopher Malone as um, Detective oh. Vincent, smash or pass. Smash. <laughs> I hear he gets crazy. No, totally. Oh, let's, no, I'm, 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 I, I, I'm like. Like it's. Of like a story, we just go smash your past to different people. Fine with me. You do the males and I do the females. Exactly. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I just Elba is Luther. Smash. Smash. <laughs> Give me some of that British chocolate, baby. I had that thought, and I because it's 2 a.m. And what do you think when you're that no, lucid? No, the answer, the answer is Hemdal. Give me the Bifrost. <laughs>